0: Love Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of the Gluten-Free Voice. I'm Jules, and I'm happy to be back with you this week to talk about lots of various things. I've gotten lots of questions in the last few weeks I've been compiling to answer for you here on the air. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, then um, please feel free to share this information with anyone else that you would like and by sending them the link to the free podcast that they can download. And if you're listening live, feel free to call in if you like and have a question. The call-in number is 347-202-0199. And if I have time at the end to take some questions, I will certainly try to do so. But I've got a long list of things to cover today. And they vary from things like substitutions and recipes to some cooking questions, you know, when I have these problems with my recipes, what can I do to fix it, to recipe conversions, to everything related to food labeling laws. So there's definitely something in this for just about anyone who is living gluten-free, whether you're a baker or just somebody who is shopping at the store and trying to figure out what's safe to buy. So hang in there as we get through as many of these topics as we can today. The first topic that I get a lot of questions on, and I'm happy to answer to it because so many people need answers, is substitutions. And we're not just talking about gluten. Usually what we're talking about is people who cannot have gluten, but they also can't have something else. So, for example, you can't have gluten and you can't have dairy, or you can't have gluten and you can't have soy, or you can't have gluten and you can't have eggs. Or maybe it's a combination of those things. Or One of the things that I, I hear a lot about, especially when I'm traveling around the country doing lectures and cooking demonstrations, is you know we'll have hands raised and say you know, uh, one member of my family can't have nuts and one can't have soy and one can't have dairy and one can't have eggs. You know, how do you do that? How, how are you supposed to serve a meal that everyone can eat and keep your sanity and, you know, also keep your checkbook and your wallet intact? And it definitely can be done. That's actually the reason why I wrote the book Free for All Cooking, my third book, which came out a couple of years ago. And it's for all those people who need to remove gluten And maybe something else. Now, if you're listening and there's something else that you need to remove from your diet, you know, I'm sure that this will resonate with you. But once someone tells you, a doctor, or you figured it out for your health, that you can't have something in your diet, you kind of hold on really tight to everything else that you can have. So... If you can't have dairy, but you can have eggs, you don't want an egg-free recipe. You want to be able to use eggs in your recipe. So the book that I wrote, the free-for-all cooking book, was all about how you can self-select what it is that you cannot have or that in a meal that you're preparing for someone else where they can't have things and teaches you the whole beginning of the book um, how to make those substitutions. So it's not just recipes that might apply to you, but also teaches you to take those tips and tools and conversion techniques and apply them to other recipes. So that way, if you can still have eggs, but you can't have your dairy, then you're not using a recipe that is an egg-free recipe, and you feel like you're somehow compromising and leaving something out that you didn't want to have. There are so many different substitutions out there. In fact, You know, just mentioning the egg substitutions. In my book, I give 12 different egg substitutions. And they all work better in certain types of recipes than in others. So, for example, the one everyone talks about is the energy egg replacer powder, which is a wonderful product, and it is gluten-free. You have to be careful because there are some other egg replacer powders on the market that are not gluten-free. So that's the one that I recommend if you're going with a powder But it doesn't work great in all applications. It works pretty well for things like cookies. I really like getting cookies. But it doesn't necessarily work well and some other things, especially things where you're substituting like an egg yolk or something like that. So you need to have some more fat in that. So there's in my book, I go through and there's 12 different substitutions, and I list what's best for which. But you might actually have found one that you prefer you know, to use across the board in almost all of your egg substitution recipes and things like that. And that's totally fine. Just stick with what works for you. But if you need a little help in that direction, You can check that out or also on my blog, I have um, recipes for egg substitutions listed out there if you search on my blog, which is blog.julesglutenfree.com. There's I don't know, two or 300 recipes plus a ton of articles and information about things like this, about how to make an egg substitution, um, how to, you know, fix your bread when it sinks and you've baked it, or, you know, recommended products and all kinds of things. So don't hesitate to hop on over there and check out all of that information if you're not finding your information elsewhere or you're not um, having success doing the experimentation that you're doing on your own. There are solutions, so don't give up. But when you are making substitutions in recipes, and this is what I hear a lot from people, they'll say, well, you know, i got to remove the egg, and then I really wanted to cut back the sugar, so I put agave in, and then, you know, I, I really didn't have this other ingredient on hand, so I did something else. The more substitutions that you make to a recipe, the more different the recipe is going to be. Not always a bad thing, but often it can be. So keep that in mind when you're making these substitutions. The more things you change about the recipe from what the recipe author had intended when the recipe author created the recipe, the more different the recipe will turn out. So, for example, if you are trying to make a quiche, which is an egg-based recipe, and you're trying to make it without eggs, You can do that. You can use tofu or other things like that to substitute. But that quiche is not going to be the same as the egg-based quiche. It will be different. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you just need to understand that it will be different. A lot of times when you're working with egg substitutions in particular, um, cakes and things like that don't tend to rise as much. Eggs are a really amazing thing in baking because they, you know, don't, just provide flavor they actually hold things together they provide body and loft um, to recipes and they also increase the protein which is great for things like yeast bread so they are very very useful in your baking so you've got to think about what were they supposed to be doing in the original recipe and that's what you have have to account for when you're making the substitution so if you have a cake or something that you're trying to substitute for Try to make as few variations as possible, but if you're taking out the eggs, you want to think about, okay, what am I going to be putting in here that will help give it lift so that it's not a heavy, dense cake? If you start substituting something else that's heavy, like applesauce or something of that nature, you've got to know that your cake is going to be more dense and heavy. Again, not necessarily a bad thing if you know to expect that. It could be a very moist and wonderful cake, but it's not going to be a light, fluffy cake. Okay, so just keep those things in mind and don't have as your expectation that, you know, it's got to be a certain way and if it's not exactly that way, then I'm not going to be happy with it because sometimes that's when you invent these amazing, you know, recipes is you had no idea that if you added pumpkin to this recipe, it would be this wonderful egg. So think about that when you're you're doing um, your substitutions as well and don't don't hold yourself to um, having to produce a certain result because it's not going to ever be exactly like the way the recipe was written if you're making substitutions. The um, the other thing that I always tell people, especially with the egg substitutions when making cakes, I've had a lot of these questions lately, which is why I'm talking about cakes so much, but a lot of birthdays lately, I suppose. But if you can use smaller pans, That's kind of a really easy way to sort of fudge things. And it's not just for egg substitutions. If you're using um, something other than dairy milk, there are so many wonderful alternatives out there. That's all I bake with is non-dairy milk. But they all do perform a little bit differently. And even gluten to a certain extent. People say that they're frustrated that their cake won't rise or that it's dense or sinks in the middle. The way around that is often as easy as just switching your pan. So first of all, I always recommend metal pans, and the metal pans will help to distribute the heat better and actually um, will help you to make a, you know, wonderful um, cake that is cooked more evenly all around. So if you imagine a round cake pan and all of your batter is sitting in the round cake pan – The middle is going to be the last to fully cook. And oftentimes that's what people say. They say, well, I took it out because the outside was getting too done and the inside wasn't done enough. Well, what if instead of cooking it in a round cake pan, you cooked it in a bundt pan or a tube pan with a tube right in the middle? That's adding another piece of metal to the middle of your cake. So it will help to cook the middle of the cake while the rest of it is being cooked around it. So simple little solution like that where – Nobody else at the party is going to know that you are trying to avoid having a soggy middle of your cake. They're just going to think you made a beautiful cake. So think about that as you're choosing which cake pans you're going to use. The same thing goes with even quick breads and things like that. If you can use more pans as opposed to one large um, quick bread pan, if you want to use smaller ones to make mini loaves or even muffins, you're going to have more success cooking it because it's much easier to regulate how fast it cooks, and whether or not it's totally done if it's a smaller unit. So, for example, again, let's say you're making a banana bread and you've had problems with the recipe because it is too moist in the middle, which is very easy to do with um Fruit breads like banana bread because it's kind of hard to measure a banana a lot of recipes will say add two bananas well your bananas might be smaller than my bananas um, and that makes it difficult plus depending on how ripe your banana is it adds more or less moisture so things like that are, are variables that are difficult to account for let's say that you know you're trying to make this banana bread and you're having problems with it cooking um and you know it tastes really good but it's just not looking like you want it to look when it's done well instead of using the 9 by you know whatever 3 pan that you have um Why don't you think about using mini loaf pans, a bunch of those, or using muffins, which oftentimes are more convenient anyway in terms of keeping things fresh rather than having to pull the whole loaf out and slice it at one time. And that way you can actually stick a a toothpick in the middle of each muffin. You can determine whether it's truly done or not before you remove it. They don't have to cook as long, and it cooks all the way through. So a simple little pan switch like that can actually really um, end a lot of headaches for people. Don't give up on a recipe even if you're having to do some substitutions because that's really a super easy way to fix a lot of these problems. So just keep that in mind as you're making substitutions. And another thing that I've seen a lot lately is people thinking that if the recipe calls for granulated sugar that they can just substitute out and use agave or stevia or something like that. While you can do that to a certain extent, and there are ratios all over the Internet, um, and I think I even have some on my website, you can do that in a lot of recipes to a certain extent. You can't do it as a one-for-one because you're taking something that's granulated and you're substituting in something that's liquid in the case of agave and in the case of liquid stevia. Stevia is another animal altogether, too, because if you're not buying baking stevia, um, then it is super, super, super concentrated, and so your ratios are definitely not going to be the same. But if you want to make those substitutions, you just have to make sure you're accounting for it. So you're going to be taking out some liquid from the recipe because you're adding in agave or even honey or another humectant like that. So you need to make sure that you're doing that in the recipe instead of just simply doing one for one. The other thing is, in cookies, in particular, the granulated sugars are so beneficial to the cookie because it actually caramelizes during the bake and provides a sort of nice little crunchy you know snap to a cookie that we're all used to whereas when you're using something else for a sweetener, you might not get that again doesn't mean your cookie's ruined, but don't expect it to be the same as the finished product when it has granulated sugar in it. Another thing about granulated sweeteners that's really nice is that when you're whipping your sugars together with your butter in lots of recipes, it gives lots of air and body to the recipe, so it makes your cakes fluffier, for example. So if you're not doing that, you're going to expect that your your cake is not going to be as risen and as light and fluffy as it would have been otherwise. So just keep that kind of stuff in mind. Um, I have something else that came up this week and I've seen this a lot, but this was pretty clear. The... Um, The commenter had left a question and said, you know, this is a great recipe, but I have to say that gluten-free flours have a characteristic flavor that requires masking with herbs, spices, spreads, sauces, or soups. I absolutely agree with you when it comes to most gluten-free flours. And I think this is one of the big myths about gluten-free. People think, oh, I can tell when I bite into that cookie that it's gluten-free. It's got that telltale aftertaste, or it's dry and crumbly, or, you know, there's different distinctive flavors that we've been all trained to think means that it's gluten-free. And a lot of instances it is, and a lot of these flours, especially things like bean flours, they have a taste. You cannot just add a bean flour to a recipe and expect that you're going to get this clean taste that... Actually, you know, has the other flavors of the recipe, you're going to have to add something else to it, which is a big beef I have with a lot of. The gluten-free flours that are out there. And as a gluten-free person myself, I was really frustrated initially when I went gluten-free years and years ago because everything I tasted tasted really bad because it had this weird aftertaste. So you have to add more sugar to the recipe or you have to add more butter to the recipe to cover up for the the grittiness or something. So you have to change the recipes in ways that I really didn't want to. I didn't want to add fat. I didn't want to add sugar. But that was the only way to get a recipe to the point where it was satisfactory for common consumption. You know, you wouldn't give a bean flour cookie to your friend and expect them to love it. But if you added a ton of extra butter and sugar, maybe they wouldn't notice. Well, I didn't want to have to do that. So don't think if you are one of those folks who tastes gluten free things and they don't taste great or you're making things and they're not tasting good, don't think that you're stuck in that rut. I had someone else post the other day that she was really bummed because she had just found out she had to go gluten-free and everything she tasted tasted so like metallic and had a weird aftertaste and she was just really depressed because she didn't think she was ever going to be able to make anything again. Well, I have news for you and it's very good news. If you are using a flower that you feel like has this weird taste that needs to be masked, stop using that flower and find something else because they exist. There are flowers out there that don't have those tastes. And if you want to try those types of flowers, then just do, I mean, just stop using the ones you're using. It doesn't have to be that way. So, for example, my Jules Gluten-Free All-Purpose Flower that I invented years ago, I've been tweaking ever since, but, um, you know, this is what I invented for myself because I didn't want to have those funky-tasting flowers. So if you were literally to just wet your finger and stick it in my flour and taste it, it would have no taste. It would not be gritty. It would not be, um, you know, leave a funny aftertaste. It would have no taste. Well, that's because it has a clean palate to it. So if you put it in your recipe for angel food cake or if you put it in your recipe for roux or if you put it in your cookie recipe or anything, it's not going to add a flavor which is great. You don't want it to. You want to have the flavor come from the rest of the recipe ingredients because that should be the focus. So please don't give up hope if you are making a recipe and it does have a funky flavor. Just know that that comes from the flour that you're using and you need to switch out. And I've had lots of people write in and say, you know, like this woman had said, this tasted funny or whatever. Well, don't use that flour anymore. Try my flour and see if you like it. If you don't you don't want to try my flour, try something else that also has a clean taste. That's the whole idea. Don't settle for something that's not working for you. You don't have to. Another question that I've had a lot of recently is about... Um, you know, rubbery breads. And this could be quick breads or it could be yeast breads. And people take them out and it's got this sort of a layer of rubbery stuff at the bottom or the middle might be rubbery or something. There's a few different things that you should look at in your recipe and how you've been making the the product. And I have an article on my blog, blog blog.julesglutenfree.com that actually goes over all of this as well. If you're having problems making bread, you know, click on that and see if something works for you there. But the first thing I would say to you is then your bread is not totally cooked. Um, The rubberiness comes from the fact that that bottom layer has not cooked all the way yet. Your oven temperature could be off. Very simple way of finding that out. Go to the grocery store or your local kitchen store and buy one of those oven thermometers, stick it in there and see if your oven is off. Or maybe there's a quadrant of your oven that is not baking at the right temperature. You might have too much liquid. Again, that happens, like I said, with a lot of the banana breads and things like that. There might be just too much moisture in there. If you're substituting applesauce for some of the fat or for eggs, that's a lot of extra moisture, so you might need to dial that back or add extra flour. You might have actually mixed it too long. Um, One of the things about gluten-free mixing for these products is if you're using a gum, like xanthan gum or guar gum, if you mix those for a long time or you know, in some cases, you know, over about two minutes, but you'll just get the hang of it as you see with these recipes, then it can really start making the product gummy. So you don't want to over mix things. Obviously you want to mix it well enough, but you don't want to overmix it. The other thing is if you're creating your own flour blend, not one like mine that already has the gums in it, you need to make sure not to add too much gum because too much gum makes things gummy. So you need to make sure that you're really looking at your ingredients and and are sure that you're not doing too much of that. Another question that I got recently was about converting recipes from wheat flour to gluten-free. And again, I have another um, article on my blog about that if you'd like to reference that at any time. Um, one of the biggest problems I see is people who are trying to do the right thing by weighing their flours, and they say, I have this wheat flour recipe, and I'm weighing the flours for the gluten-free, and it's not the, fl- the recipe's not working. It's either too wet or too dry or what have you. The problem probably lies in the fact that you're weighing incorrectly. Now, I'm a big fan of weighing because it's much more accurate than volumetric measurements of cups and such, but what you need to make sure you're doing is getting an accurate weight for a cup of the gluten-free flour that you're using. For example, my gluten-free Jules Gluten-Free All-Purpose Flour weighs 135 grams per cup. So if you are converting a wheat flour recipe, you should be measuring my flour to 135 grams per cup. And it will not weigh the same as one cup of wheat flour or one cup of sweet rice flour or one cup of quinoa flour. They will all weigh something different. So make sure that you are weighing things properly when you are making those substitutions. All right, quick switcheroo. We're going to go talk about labeling because this came up last week. And again, it comes up all the time, unfortunately, but this came up last week and really caused a big sink because people were very upset that they were unaware of the fact that certain things were going on in the industry. Now you may or may not know, but A couple of years ago, we launched the Gluten-Free Food Labeling Summit, and we um, formed a group called 1in133.org, and you can still go check out the site there. We got um, over 10,000 petition signatures in about two months' time, and we built the world's tallest gluten-free cake to petition the FDA to issue gluten-free food labeling regulations, which they had not to date done. Following our event, where the FDA and several Congress people had attended and spoken, the FDA promised that they would propound these regulations within the following three months, which they did to the day. And the regulations have made it through the pike. They've had comment periods and, and the final regulations are sitting in the White House right now for signature. So we have made our way to that level um, and we can expect those to come out shortly, hopefully very shortly. But, All that being said, there's still a lot of confusion about gluten-free food labeling um, as it exists now and as it could potentially exist once these regulations are issued. The biggest thing that is confusing to people is the statement made in a facility or on equipment that also produces or contains wheat. And the, the statements are, you know, some form of that same idea. If you have two products in your hands, one says that it's made in a facility or on equipment that also produces wheat. The other one does not say that. If you were to ask someone which one is the safer one for someone who is gluten-free, 9.999 times out of 10, people are going to select the one that does not have that made in a facility claim on it. What people don't understand is that that statement is a voluntary statement, meaning that the package in your other hand that does not have that statement on it could very well also be made in a facility or on equipment that produces wheat. And that is a shocking revelation to people who think that they are shopping and doing the best that they can for their families and are purchasing things without those statements on them. And I know too many people to count who say, I will never buy anything that is made in a facility that also produces wheat. I am not judging that that position at all. What I want you to understand is that does not make the product unsafe, nor does a product with the without the statement on it make it safe and That's very confusing to get through to people because they see it on there and they are petrified that they're going to contaminate their family because there's wheat in the facility i do not know how many numbers of products are certified gluten-free, but I know that there are many, 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 many more than you would even imagine that are certified gluten-free by an independent certification agency like the Gluten-Free Certification Organization that are made in facilities that also produce wheat. Let me repeat that. There are many, many, many products that are certified gluten-free, that are made in facilities and on equipment that also produce wheat. The reason being because they do it well. They wash down the equipment, they test, they have dedicated times, perhaps they have a separate room. There's all different ways of doing it and those manufacturers are going to the trouble of getting the certification, which includes the training and includes the testing, to be sure that their products still meet those standards. And for most of these independent organizations, the standard is 10 parts per million or less, less than 10 parts per million. So you need to understand that that maintenance facility claim is super 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 confusing and on its face might help you decide um that you think you're buying something that's safer when it may not in fact be so the the things that i can recommend to you to do as a shopper are to first of all if you have a product that you are unsure of whether or not it is made in a facility that also produces weed or how they are handling cross-contamination procedures the first thing you must do is contact that manufacturer yourself you have to satisfy yourself to your standards that that manufacturer has done it right. I mean, maybe you'll find out that there is no weed facility. Maybe you'll find out that there is. Well, how do you handle that? If they cannot answer your questions to, to your satisfaction, then you know not to buy that product. Second, of course, always buy things that are certified gluten-free because that's the way you can be sure that the products have been tested by an independent outside agency. Third, you know, Obviously, if it's clear from the product or you're familiar with the manufacturer and you know that it's made in a dedicated facility, then you don't have to worry. But if that is not apparent from the packaging or from the website, then you look for the other options. The safest bet is obviously to go with something that's not made in a contaminated facility. But there are ways around that that these certification organizations show companies how to safely produce other Um, Products that are made in those um, joint facilities. This comes up all the time. And as a consumer, it's very difficult to know whether or not you're buying something safe, which is why we need the gluten-free food labeling regulations, which will just be the first step in trying to really find out whether the manufacturer is doing it right. But it will be a very helpful step. There is a product or maybe, I guess maybe more than one product, produced by um, Bob's Red Mill, which is a brand that, you know, is respected everywhere and makes lots of gluten-free products. But they have facilities that make products that have gluten in them, and they have facilities that make products that do not have gluten in them. And their packaging can be quite confusing because you could take a product such as corn flour, which is what started this whole thing last week. I was at the store trying to buy cornmeal and corn flour as a gluten-free consumer because I needed it for a recipe. I could not find certified gluten-free cornmeal anywhere. It's very difficult to find. And I picked up a bag of Bob's Red Mill cornmeal, and it was not made in their gluten-free facility. And, it was made in their other facility, and I know that just because I, you know, I've talked to the folks from Bob's Red Mill, and I know how, you know, how they work, and then I know that they have the dedicated facilities, and that they do run their corn products. Sometimes they run those in the dedicated facility, and sometimes they don't. And to their credit, they don't put gluten-free on the products that are run in the de- in the facilities that also have wheat. But as a consumer, it's very difficult to note on the packaging which is which, and. You know, it's just something that reminds you every single day that you have to be vigilant in reading labels because that's all we have as far as information goes. Someone shared with me today that Coleman's mustard from the U.K., their dry or prepared mustard, actually contains wheat. Well, would you have thought that a mustard contained wheat? Well, maybe not. But that doesn't mean that going forward you shouldn't be careful with every single product that you pick up. Make sure that it does not contain wheat or gluten in the ingredients and make sure you're buying the right one. I was at the store last week and I bought Annie Chun's um, Thai peanut sauce because she just released a gluten-free Thai peanut sauce. I got home and I realized I bought the wrong one. I bought the Annie Chun's Thai peanut sauce, not the Annie Chun's Thai peanut sauce that is now gluten-free. It happens to everybody. You just have to be extremely vigilant and make sure that you're reading every single label to keep yourself safe. And if you have questions, contact the manufacturers. Contact the gluten-free certification organization if you have questions about any of their products that are certified or anyone else. That's, you know, your responsibility as a consumer is to dig as deep as you can to find the answers to protect yourself. And unfortunately, right now, the state of the labeling laws is such that it makes it difficult. But you can find your answers, and you just have to satisfy yourself to your standards that the foods are safe. Well, I hope that those answered some of your questions. There's obviously tons more information on blog.julesglutenfree.com. Please feel free to go there. You can find me on Facebook at Jules Gluten-Free Flour, on Twitter at Jules Gluten-Free, Pinterest, Instagram, Google+. You can reach me however you like. But um, stay safe and stay happy, and don't settle for less than great-tasting, safe, gluten-free food.